Welcome to this episode of Beaverpod, the clinical catch-ups. The following session was recorded live during the Beaver Clinical Catch-ups webinars. For the full webinar experience, Beaver members can find past sessions online via the Beaver website. Okay, so I'd like to introduce you all to um, our July clinical catch-up. We're very lucky today to have the very well-known um, James Crabtree, Director of Equine Reproductive Services with us today, and he's going to talk to us about estrus suppression. As I said, you're more than welcome to unmute and um, ask questions, and you can even switch video on, join in if you like. Um, otherwise, do feel free to chat in the type in the chat box, and I will fire any questions to him. There will be time to chat um, at the end of the talk as well. So don't feel you have to get your question in, um, but do feel free to. Okay, over to you, James. Fabulous, thank you, Sarah. I will share my screen. If anybody wants a copy of the presentation at a later date, um, if you just email Sarah or myself, if you don't worry, you won't miss anything. We can we can always get that information to you later. Um, so this, this is a part of the Beaver Clinical Catch-Ups. It's our online series. A um, couple of declarations. As Sarah said, I'm Director at Equine Reproductive Services. Uh, I am an honorary lecturer at the University of Liverpool. We are also distributors for the IUPOD, the um, devices that are used for estrus suppression um, in mares, and I'll talk about those a little bit later, but we do distribute those in the UK. Um, we also do distribute um, uterine spheres for estrus suppression as well, so just some declarations out of the way. We, yeah, not really applicable to this, but we distribute the C6 filing alarms as well. Okay, so the subject of estrus suppression. It's a, it's a really common reason for presentation in clinical practice to, to, to all levels of clinician, first opinion, mixed practice, um, all the way to, to referral practice. There, and there are common cases for referral between vets, usually for a, you know, a surgical procedure or a second opinion. It affects every horse from low level to the elite competition horses. And there's lots of information in the public domain on the internet, in chat rooms. There are also lots of opinions Lots of them are wrong, uh, but many of them are valid observations and, and, and have value. Um, there are a lot of alternative therapies available as a result of uh, the fact that even the mainstream therapies that we use, if they're not used properly and they fail to work, people often look for alternatives. There are a few ethical considerations to think about with some of these estrus suppression techniques. There are also competition uh, considerations if we're using drugs or, or uh, medical devices to have a think about, but many clients require us to fix this quickly. It's, it's got to a point, they've, they've tried something, they've read on the internet, they've, they've tried something else, and now they want to come to their vet, they've decided it's gonna cost them, and they want you to stop this behavior straight away because they can't use their horse for the purpose they had it for. So that's, that's quite common. It's almost like the emergency consultation for estrus suppression. We've got to ask ourselves, what is undesirable behaviour? And, and, and certain behaviour, which is frowned upon for the general riding club horse, might be desirable for another uh, category or discipline. So an Australian uh, rodeo rider is quite happy with a horse doing this, but if, uh, if a riding club horse does this after it comes over a, a show jump, um, that won't be desirable. 
And often we, we sort of have to consider those avert reproductive behaviors, those, those mares or fillies that will, you know, let's take it to the show ring. They walk in the show ring, there's new horses about, they squat, they lift their tail, they pee, and they can't get them to lead off the spot. They're planted. Um, and that, that can be embarrassing for them, and it's not really conducive to what they want. Now, it's, it's normal reprodu reproductive behaviour, but it's, so it's not a problem as such. It's not a disease state, but this is an issue that the behaviour that the horse is naturally demonstrating is undesirable for the purpose that we want to use the horse for. Um, okay. Aggression is another category of behavior that we often talk about. Uh, normally, it's aggression towards other horses. Now, if we think about the physiology of the reproductive cycle, estrus is not really associated with aggressive behavior. It's actually more likely to be the, the diestrus, where the mare is unresponsive to approaches um, than anything else. And it's not necessarily stallion-like behavior we're talking about either, testosterone-driven behavior. We'll talk a little bit later about the pathology of the ovaries, but this, this, this aggressive behavior is often associated with a mare having cycles and are being grumpy. Um, we'll talk about putting human um, thought processes into horses and the anthropomorphism that that represents, but aggressive behaviors are often associated by the clients with, with the cycle. And that can be aggression towards other horses. Here you see the grey horse that's, that's, that's very aggressive in its mannerisms, um, wanting to repel the other horse, which is, is, is actually looks quite sweet and is more interested in what's going on uh, with the camera and the picture being taken than the horse next door. The bay horse is probably in season and the grey horse is probably in diestrus and probably is inherently just a little bit grumpy. But it's when that aggression turns towards people and then we often, there can be fearful relationships developed between horse and owner or horse and groom or certain members of staff. Um, and that can be a little bit self-reinforcing. And some things that we get sometimes is, look, this horse is dangerous. You know, it's going to kill somebody or it's going to, there's going to be an injury. And so you're sort of pushed to do something about it. What, is, what they're labeling as reproductive behavior, else it's going to be put to sleep. Um, so aggression is a very emotive one. Um, but not always one that um, is actually associated with estrus. More often than not, and, and this applies to the low level and the elite horses, is difficulties with train training or difficulties um, uh, or a horse being less trainable than, than one that is not perceived as being in season. But these difficulties with training, you know, they are discipline specific um, and they may actually be rider specific as well. There, I've often appreciated that there is the response to certain um, cues or signals by the rider or certain instructions that are, are administered via the leg can be received and perceived and actioned differently by a horse that is in diestrus versus a horse that is in estrus. As physiology and evolution intended, sometimes a horse that's in season can be more willing to instruction than a horse in diestrus. But riders and owners often perceive that estrus is actually the problem. So sometimes it's about a willingness or a resistance. There's some of the words that are sometimes used. As I've said, it can be rider specific and sometimes it can be very, very subtle. Um, and I'd probably say that more often than not in the elite competition horse, this, the symptoms are subtle. 
whereas in the in the general riding horse um, or hack they can be often more perceived and presented as being more extreme. Something that ends at the top end is sometimes described and, and some of the words that are used is that I've just got a lack of concentration. You know, she'll, she'll, she'll knock the pole down, whereas she's a bit more careful, a bit more focused when she's not in season. But from our point of view, we need to, yes, we need to listen and think about what the, the symptoms that are being presented to us are, and we need to make an association with the reproductive cycle. So we need to demonstrate a temporal relationship of, of the given problematic or undesirable behaviours with cyclic ovarian activity. So we do need to rule out other sources of pain and discomfort, and, and I'll lead on to, with some examples of, of those and how we'd go about that. But we, we're often prompted on the first exam to do a gynecological examination, make sure that there's no pain originating from the reproductive tract, and also to determine what stage of the estrus cycle the mare is in. You know, and I'll often say to people, well, how is she behaving at the moment? Because before I put my hand in, I want to know, I want the owner to nail their colours to the mast and say, right, if you had to say today, is she in season or not in season? And it does require a thorough gynaecological examination. And we may also need to do some di di diagnostic endocrinology, often progesterone and, and, and other hormones to determine if there is pathology there. And, and maybe also for some clarification as if to the mare is in season or not. And sometimes this diagnostic process will involve trial therapy, often with Altrenagest. And I'll go on to that again in a bit more detail momentarily. So the temporal relationship, yes, it can be behavior is bad, mare is in season. But equally, I would like to examine the mare when she is not behaving badly um, to demonstrate that you know, she is in the opposite phase of the cycle and she's not just still in estrus and there's, there's other factors involved. So it's often easiest to go back to the client and they sigh and groan about it when you say, can you keep a diary or, or in your diary, can you just make a note of, of when the mare has these behaviours, when they're at their worst? Um, and then you can sort of fit that uh, in and around your examinations to determine, are they following a pattern? You know, is the mare cycling? you know in a in a 21 day cycle and when in that cycle are the clients appreciating the problems with the horse then we need to think about musculoskeletal pain and more often than not when the rider is riding the horse behind the seat behind the saddle is where the ovaries are internally in the horse and and it can get a little bit complicated and interconnected but you know very rarely do we get presented with easy lameness nowadays. I, I would say nine times out of 10, all of the lameness cases I deal with are subtle, intermittent, bilateral, probably hind limb lamenesses. You know, and things like proximal suspensory desmitis, hock osteoarthritis, sacroiliac joint problems, back issues, um, are all possibly presenting um, at the exact same time as, as the mare is for this behavior. And so you might find that the water is a bit muddy. It's not just a, a simple um, step. And so, you know, I'm, I'm probably viewed as somebody who's more of a reproduction orientated, but quite a lot of our caseload is general practice as well. So we have plenty of these cases where they might be presented to me for estrus suppression, but at Trotop, I'm I have to tell them that, that the horse is bilaterally lame, positive to flexion and likely got multiple issues depending on the discipline that it's competing under. So important to rule out musculoskeletal pain. 
And as part of that, we do think about soft tissue and muscle pain. So examining the horses, uh, withers, back, uh, and those are sorts of areas to see if we've got um, resistance, spasm. And, and often that means engaging with um, physiotherapists, chiropractors, and other people that may be treating the horse to try and build up a picture of where and when and how severe um, pain originating from the musculoskeletal tissues of the back there are. We may also have to engage with the idea that the saddle might not fit. Now, point pressure um, sometimes is, is quite simple to, to, to do, but maybe subtle saddle fit and pressure points um, might need us to engage with a saddle fitter um, just to try and determine whether or not we've got some issues there, especially when the problems are only manifested when riding. Other things we have to think about uh, a dental pain, you know, is this when the client is asking the horse to come into an outline um, to, to, to have the head carriage in the right position for dressage, for instance, um, and it's actually the teeth that are causing the issue. The horse is resistant, it's fighting, perhaps might also be in, influenced by the stage of the cycle to a degree, um, but actually it's got, it's got lots of overgrowth in its teeth. It might have a sawtooth, might have temporomandibular joint pain. So something to consider. Then we also think about gastric ulceration. Now, why is there a picture of somebody girthing up a horse there? Because when you look on the internet, not necessarily through the scientific uh, literature, but girthing problems are pretty high on a client's list for a horse having gastric ulceration. And so, I mean, we've seen horses with gastric ulcers that haven't had any symptoms, have had severe symptoms, uh, been off the food, skinny, unhealthy, um, but every extreme. Um, and I'm not convinced that within my client base that we see a consistent pattern of, of, of how these horses present, mainly um, that probably their uh, breed and, and, and management is probably the most important indicators that they may or may not have ulcers, but it's something to consider in the plethora of conditions. Now, my, my uh, predecessor, Jonathan Pycock, always used to say, well, before you bring a horse from, to me for estrus suppression assessment, go away and get the equivalent of a five-stage betting done on it, because in reality, it needs a really, really thorough examination before we're gonna focus in and blame the problem on the mare's reproductive tract. A little bit of gastric alteration there. Now, this is something always to consider. And, and, and as a male vet, I sometimes have to approach this carefully with female horse owners. Um, but I think it, it sort of does need addressing it with them um, if, if this is an issue. So it's the interpretation of pain and pain from the reproductive tract, because we do have this anthropomorphism that goes on, which it, it's human nature to some extent to apply their own human experience um, and how they feel about their uh, reproductive cycle into the horse. Well, the horse is different. The horse doesn't menstruate, so it doesn't get menstrual pain. You know, we often clients will say, well, you know, I can feel myself, you know, I get pain around the point of ovulation. So maybe the mare's feeling that. And I, and I don't think that's wrong. I think that is possible, but there is this more severe syndrome called pelvic pain syndrome, which affects both men and women. When you get soft tissue, musculoskeletal, reproductive um, tract, and urogenital tract pain within the pelvic area, and it can tend to radiate outwards, go to the sacroiliac joint, go to the hip joint, um, and can cause multiple problems with, um, with issues about interpretation of pain. And so we might find that if a horse has got something, uh, yeah, okay, hip pain is probably not as common um, as it is in people, but maybe sacroiliac joint pain, 
maybe the stage of the cycle, maybe the horse could become more sensitive if she's got issues with the sacroiliac joints. So more sensitive in a reproductive tract and vice versa. So it is something to consider because we've got what the human experience of pain and the issues that they face, people face um, versus how that is, is, is imparted on the horse. I do believe that there is an equine painful ovary syndrome, which doesn't necessarily have to be associated with ovulation. You know, we get some horses that are problematic in diestrus and they present with very large diestrus follicles. Um, many of you may know that mares can continue to have follicular waves during diestrus and may even ovulate diestrus follicles. So it is possible that experience, they experience pain at, at different stages or different phases of the, the estrus cycle. Um, and also they can have very, very large anovulatory hemorrhagic follicles or even the potential to have ovarian hematomas. Um, we did get presented with a recipient just recently that was said, well, she's chronically lame in a, in a unilaterally lame in a hind limb. We can't find a problem with it. So we're going to send it to you to become a recip. I put my hand in it and said, well, we're going to have to move, move its, remove its left ovary because it's got a chronic ovarian hematoma. Um, we removed the hematoma. The horse was sound. It didn't come back to be a recip. So there is a potential that um, you know, ovarian or internal issues can lead to, to lameness. Hormone profiling, probably the gold standard, we're often thinking anything to do with ovaries, we're thinking can they have hormonally active tumors? And we think about the, the most common of those would be the granulosa cell tumor and or the subtype of the granulosa theca cell tumor. Um, the vast majority of time we're thinking about anti-malarian hormone nowadays to, to rule those in or out with or without testosterone if they've got any stallion-like behaviours. It's also important, I believe, to run progesterone on those because if you're looking at a big, unusually uh, sized or with a, an unusual ecotexture, often with this sort of lacy uh, pattern that is looked like it's multi-locular, um, they can also be um, misdiagnosed as granulosa cell tumors when they're actually just sort of organizing hemorrhagic anovulatory or luteal structures. So progesterone is a helpful rule out um, for, for, for granulosa cell tumors as well. We still do use inhibin. It used to be the old gold standard, but we do still go back to it for clarification of, 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 of um, equivocal AMH. Uh, results. But what I would say is that you've got to be beware of interpretation of limited endocrine assays. So if you miss something out or blind sampling, we did have a case once that was come back to us as a second opinion from a surgeon who said, um, I've got an AMA, I've got a blood result that says the horse has got a granulosa cell tumor. Um, the horse has never been examined. It's come into us and we don't know which ovary to remove. I go have a look at the horse and I would say, well, both its ovaries look physiologically normal. So what, and that was back in the days when we only had inhibin at hand. Well, inhibin will peak periovulation. So if you've got a mare that's behaving badly, she's around about the time that she's ovulating. So you could argue peak um, estrus, you take a blood, you could pick up an elevated inhibin and actually what you should have done would have, have a look at the mare internally or get a, an experienced colleague, a colleague experience in, in, in reproduction to have a look to determine what's going on. So you just have to be a little bit careful because you can get false positives as well, especially if you run um, limited assays. Right, so we're getting to the nitty gritty now. What are, what are our options? Well, the go-to would be progestogen supplementation. Um, there is a list here. Some of the things we're going to go into a little bit deeper about, um, some of the other methods we're not necessarily going to talk about, but 
you can potentially induce a late, late diestrous ovulation if you're monitoring these mares. She's out of season, so she's behaving well with respect to progesterone and estrogen levels. You can potentially, if she develops a follicle, make that ovulate when she's out of season and prolong that diestrous phase. But we just need to consider the prescribing cascade here because many of the things that we're going to talk about are either off-label or off-license. So if we want to make a mare ovulate, we will end her season, we'll move her into the luteal phase or diestrous, and we can use an ovulation drug to do that. So Coralon is licensed, but potentially there's some efficacy issues. Desilorelin acetate we have access to. Um, Ovuplant, which we used to have, is no longer available. We have, do have a, a, an extemporaneous desilorelin, which is efficacious and safe, um, so we can use that. And then there are other ovulation induction agents using buzzerelin acetate, but they are off-label. Um, there's a range of those, and you can go off-license um, and use a human product, but clinical data is a little bit lacking on those. So when it comes to inducing an ovulation, we have a, a wide range of options available and we do use the cascade on a regular basis. So I'm gonna highlight when things are off label or off license as we move through. Ultranagest is the gold standard and at a standard dose for 10 days is the licensed indicated product to use. If you increase uh, the dosage to a double dose, which we usually consider as 0.088 mg per kg, you are moving off label. There is an injectable formulation available from Bova Specials, which is a 50 mg per mil Alternagest product, but that is obviously using that on the cascade, and that is an off-license product. Just a couple of, of things to think about with respect to um, Alternagest and Regimate is that FEI certification is no longer required. You don't need a treatment form two for, for, for Regimate in FEI horses. There are some health and safety issues um, with respect to human absorption, um, and one should wear gloves when administering or utilizing the product. We have had some uh, stud managers and stud grooms that haven't taken the care they should when using this product and got some skin absorption, which has affected their reproductive cycles. So some very significant and important health and safety issues. There is also a BHA ban, uh, so British Horse Racing Authority ban on Altranagest products, which we've got to be aware of because if we're talking about a thoroughbred uh, racehorse in training, these products can't even be on the yard and they can't be used in them. And that is because, so if anybody doesn't know, it's because of the uh, impurities, trenbenolone and trendione, which are actually viewed as anabolic steroids. Um, and there's a, a lifetime ban on anabolic steroids. So off-label and off-license. When we talk about Altranagest trial therapy, we usually start the, the horses for 10 days on a standard dosis, so that the labeled indication or occasionally we might give 150 milligrams by intramuscular injection. One of my justifications for using the Cascade is, is really human health and safety sometimes with some of these products. And we ask ourselves the question, does the behavior change? Firstly, is the horse or pony, is it better or do the owners view it as being more normal? And if there is no change, we then do consider increasing the dose of Altranagest to, to a double the dose, so 0.088 mix per kick, once daily for 10 days, and then determine um, if there is um, a response or if there is no response. And if they are no better, we do consider a gynecological examination whilst they're on that therapy, because that can be quite illuminating as well, especially if you've got a big diestrous follicle present whilst the horse is on Altranagest. 
Of course, if we move and increase the dosage, we are off-label. Uh, and if we use the injectable form, we're obviously off license. Off-label progestogens, there are many. Um, these are some that have been investigated and they are also some that I scoured the internet when I first started, you know, doing a bit of background research on this subject. And, and these are all things that have been quoted as being used by clients or veterinary surgeons online. It's a, it's a murky world to be in the online chat rooms trying to find out about estrus suppressive drugs and hormones, but um, these are some of the things that have been reported as being used, and of course they are all off license. Um, there's no clinical evidence for any of these products, and many if not all of them are prohibited and banned under all jurisdictions. And we know that uh, none of these are, we know that a lot of these products don't bind to the equine progesterone receptor. So if they are having an effect, it might not be through the normal mechanisms. And I think this is a good point to acknowledge that, and not a lot of people know this fact, is that Regimate can curb unwanted behavior in geldings. Okay, so it's not through a mechanism of testosterone suppression. Um, and we know from very old research that Altranagest has been demonstrated to cross the blood brain barrier and have a central effect on the brain. So Altranagest can actually be having a direct effect and nothing to do with its, 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 hormonal, um, its hormonal component and binding to the progesterone receptor. Now oxytocin, these are all products now that we're going to talk about that really have their effect by prolonging the lifespan of the primary CL. So the mare her follicular phase is in estrus, she ovulates, that primary cell that ovulates produces progesterone and so keeps the mare out of season. Now, generally speaking, if she's not bred and doesn't conceive, there'll be no maternal recognition of pregnancy, that CL will regress between about 14 and 16 days, the mare will then come back into season uh, and have another estrus period. So if we can prolong the lifespan of that primary CL, we can keep the progesterone pump, the CL going, and she will maintain endogenous production of progesterone for up to approximately 90 days. And 90 days is the is the is the, the probably the predetermined maximum lifespan of the primary CL, assuming that she only ovulates once and that is the only CL that she's got. So it was first demonstrated by Dirk Vanderval, um, and there's been up updates to this research, but 60 international units of oxytocin, so most people will have the MSD oxytocin S, um, there are other products available, six mils twice daily intramuscularly on days seven to 14 after ovulation. So you do need to know when the mare ovulates to be able to target her to give her a seven to 14 days afterwards. There are protocols suggesting that you can give for a longer period of time to to, to hit that period, but then you would be jabbing the mare a lot, a lot more. So these figures are based on small numbers, but it does have um, data from field studies uh, supporting its use. So of, of six mares, 100% uh, of the mares pro had prolonged luteal phases of 30 days compared to controls. Now, a lot of them stop their study periods at a certain period of time. So you might think, well, 30 days is not very long, but that's just when the mares were stopped monitoring. It was determined that if she didn't come back into season by 30 days, you had achieved prolonged CL lifespan. Now you do reduce that to approximately 70% efficacy when you reduce the dosage to once, once daily. And there's all 
everybody has a tendency to play around with this. So we tend to use for 40 international units twice daily. And a colleague of mine dealing with standard breads in Scandinavia said they had really good response rates to that. Um, interestingly, not a lot of our clients take us up when we're going through the options for estrus suppression. It is a peptide hormone. It's obviously, it's off label if you're using it for estrus suppression. Um, and it is, you know, there are sort of short withdrawal periods or permitted use of oxytocin for reproductive matters. Um, but we don't get a lot of uptake. People just don't like the idea of the horse having 14 injections. Um, there is a, a product which was compounded in North America, demonstrated and reported in 2019 by Dirk and, and, and his, his um, group, which demonstrated a slow release oxytocin, which is 2,400 international units given once on day seven and again on day 10 after ovulation was adequate in causing this, but we don't have access to that product in the UK. Um, so oxytocin, a valid product uh, to be able to use to cause a prolongation of the primary CL. Um, and it really is just having a, a client that is comfortable with that procedure. Now, the other thing that we often use for prolongation of the primary sale are these intrauterine de devices. So why have I got an eyeball looking at us there? Well, it's really just to acknowledge that um, really glass balls for this purpose have probably gone the way of glass eyes. Um, they many in historically marbles were used a lot of the time as IUDs in mares. And they are, I mean, people do question their efficacy, but setting that aside, there are anecdotal uh, and published reports of significant complications occurring in mares. They do irritate the uterine lining, they can penetrate the endometrium, you can get uterine infection. And of course, if one marble is good, two must be better. People put more than one marble in, they can clang together, they can break. But equally, individual marbles can break as well. They have been associated with colic. Um, one of the interesting ones was a mare in New Zealand that did actually get penetration of the endometrial lining that it, it burrowed into the endometrial uh, lining and, and was, was almost, uh, I think, more time available may have made it way, its way through to a subserosal position. But we've got to remind ourselves that glass is porous and you can get cellular invasion and tissue pegs forming um, and it can, it can cause some significant issues. We do deal with a number that are broken. This is a marble that was removed three years after it had been placed in. And you can see that this, 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 this surface um, thickening, which looks like it would wipe off, would not wipe off because it was tissue that was invading into the surface of the glass. And here is a marble that had been through an autoclave. And it's actually been in a mare for uh, three weeks. Um, it was a veterinary nurse's mare. Uh, she provided the marble, um, this was a case in Australia, it went into the mare and it had been through the autoclave, it looked perfect before it went in, um, it did cause persistent luteal phase and then they had a change of heart and they decided that they wanted it out and when we brought it out, it had all of these little pits in it which actually was uh, flaking little shards of glass and, and we assumed that it was actually the high temperature and pressure in the autoclave which had caused some micro fractures which only uh, then manifest when, when the marble got in a moist environment. So there are, you know, there are significant and, and real problems with glass balls so we wouldn't recommend using those anymore. What we do use um, are these polymethyl methyl, methacrylate spheres, a um, couple of sizes, 35 and 25 millimeters, uh, and we gas sterilize them in ethylene oxide. 
um, we use an aseptic technique. Um, they're inserted into the uterus, ideally periovulation through a relaxed open cervix. We then manipulate them through to the cranial uterine body or the base of a uterine horn, and we would recommend that they're removed at the end of the breeding season. I did try and do a survey into you know, what, what people were using these for, the types of behaviors and, and, and the reported efficacy that we're getting, but we had such poor feedback on the survey, it, it wasn't really valid. Um, but we seem to get good client satisfaction when we use these. Um, the mares that we actually get represented with in the time when they should be back in season, we do get a real number of those in a persistent luteal phase. But the literature would tell us that there can be between um, zero and 70% efficacy for these, for these uh, devices. Interestingly, uh, a good friend of mine, Carol Anago, did the study into pony mares and got a zero um, efficacy with them. Now, what that was to do with why they didn't see an effect, I do not know. And I, I don't know, you know whether or not we'll ever find that out. But it, that's what gives them a questionable, questionable efficacy of some of these other studies, which demonstrated that they didn't have a good effect. What's new on the scene are these. So what was associated, the negative connotations of a marble were glass, but also people struggled to get them out. And so Carlos Gradil came up with this natty idea that he would, he would make three smaller pessaries that would aggregate into a larger structure. Now, we don't know whether the magnetism of these devices has an effect. Um, at the moment, they are a rare earth metal core with a plastic coating. Um, the, the sizes have changed over the years uh, as they started to be used clinically. So they're a little bit bigger now than the three 12 by 26 elliptical elements. I have one here, so I could probably show you a little bit later. There is an applicator and a retriever available. Um, so theoretically, you can pop them manually through the cervix, manipulate them, they'll self-aggregate into this ring and then sit in the uterus and, and act as an IUD. When they're inserted post-ovulation, so you know when ovulation is, the mean duration of diestrus, and Carlos followed these a lot further, was 73 plus or minus 36 days which is interesting because that's longer than the 90 days that I suggested. But some of the mares only had were out of season for 36 days. But they, that is the, the physiological nature of these things and, and how they can work. If you insert them into a mare without a predetermination of the stage of the estrus cycle, the mean duration of diestrus was 51 plus or minus 20 days. So some of them were out of season for 77 days, some of them were out of season only for about 30, um, 28, 18 days. But there were significantly longer than the controls, suggesting that maybe they were catching some mares and keeping them out of season, or if the mare came straight into season, perhaps they were having an effect on the next and subsequent ovulation. It is interesting when you talk to clients about these IUDs, because they would swear that the mare's been out of season from the day that you put them in. Now, physiology tells us they probably weren't. So there, there is there's likely a placebo effect to a lot of the things that we do with estrus suppression, uh, driven the placebo obviously acting upon the owner. Intrauterine coconut oil is something else that we, we occasionally use for prolongation of the primary CL. Um, we tend to put them in day 10. We usually quote to the client day nine to 11, just so that we can avoid a Sunday. We time or reduce the ovulation, and then we use a, a mill of pharmaceutical grade coconut oil. Um, we do it in a very clean fashion, like we're doing an embryo transfer, and we put the coconut oil through a 22 micron 
uh, like an IRAP filter. Um, we're only talking about very small quantities. And this, I won't dwell on it too long, but it was um, discovered by accident, if you like. It was part of a study looking at the maternal recognition of pregnancy. Uh, Twink and Sandra thought they'd cracked it, thinking that estrogen was um, was was one of the uh, indicators that they that the mare was in foal, maternal recognition of pregnancy factor. But they were using uh, coconut oil as the carrier agent, and then when they did their control studies with just coconut oil, they demonstrated when coconut oil was infused on day eight, seventy-five percent of mares had a prolonged diesterous. Infused on day ten. 92% of mares had a prolonged diastrus and on day 12, it started to drop off again. So that's why we aim for day 10, but we're not too tight. We try and avoid Sundays if we can. And this does work in our hands. There's a little bit in the literature um, demonstrating that maybe it isn't the same for everybody else. There's some colleagues in the USA have never got this to work. Um, it did talk in the paper about using other oils and peanut oils. And I have had people go to the supermarket and get groundnut oil uh, and use that and, 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 and be, uh, well, I feel it's su surprised that it wouldn't work, but oil cooking products are not sterile. So we, we try and be very scientific about this and work to very, very high standards. And so we do use this pharmaceutical grade oil and filter it to minimize the chances of introducing bacteria. Because obviously if we introduce bacteria during diestrus, we'll get an endometritis, prostaglandin release, your lysa CL, she come back into season and then that's, that's worse than ever. So um, uh, this is another, another uh, potential uh, avenue to go down. Desloralin acetate, we're moving, we're thinking about a different mechanism now. We're talking about giving the mare a GnRH overdose. Why, do, why does giving her a GnRH overdose help us with estrus suppression? Well, what it will do, any of the GnRH products, if you give them, will cause ovulation of any uh, dominant follicles that might be present on the ovaries, may even induce an ovulation of a diestrus follicle. But if you give a big enough dose over a sustained release, which is why we're talking about implants, because they do give a sustained release, you will get um, a surge of, of, of LH and FSH, but it, it tends to deplete um, the, cause negative feedback on the hypothalamus and deplete the pituitary axis of these hormones. So the negative feedback is quite potent. Now, if we were talking about this uh, when desloralin uh, acetate as uh, oviplant was available, we'd be talking about giving two or three oviplant implants. But now they've moved off the market, we don't have those available, but we do have suprelarin, which is the product that's licensed for dogs and ferrets. Um, so we talk about using either one of the implants, which is the smaller one, which is 4.7 milligrams, or using two of them. There is actually a bigger implant available as well. Now, what was demonstrated through scientific study that there was a down regulation evidenced by GnRH challenge. So they challenged these mares at a later date to see if they would, with GnRH, see if they would produce LH and FSH, and those responses were diminished. But equally, they had a, a suppression of, of their um, estrocycles equivalent to one and two full cycles, depending on whether one or two implants were used. So this is potentially something that can be utilized for the estrus suppression in horses. But of course, we remind ourselves that it is off license. Anybody that has used equity or known about GnRH vaccines, there was a product licensed in Australasia for the use and control of estrus and estrus-related behaviors in fillies and mares not intended for breeding. 
we used to be able to get it. Unfortunately, it is no longer available. So what else have we got as an option? And we actually do have an option with a pig vaccine in the UK. Um, anybody wondering why I've got a QR code in the top right hand corner, Viva recently released um, a one of the patient client patient information leaflets for Improvac um, and that QR code will lead you to the client information leaflet for uh, Improvac if you want to use that as a reference you're I'm sure you are very welcome to and it is downloadable from Beaver so um, follow that route or you can find that via the website um, it's used in male pigs and it's the it's an alternative to physical castration for the reduction of boar taint in the meat testosterone taint of the meat um, it's a non-mineral oil-based adjuvant, which is pretty nasty. There's many reasons why you don't want to inject yourself with a GnRH vaccine, because it, it does cross-react across the species, but the, the adjuvant is pretty nasty. Uh, it can form granulomatous-type uh, responses. So you do have to be aware of injection site reactions in horses. The majority of horses are pyrexic after initial vaccination. This is some data from Dominic Berger with approximately one third of horses will have a swollen and painful neck. If you inject them in the neck on boosting, three quarters of horses will react with painful, swollen and stiff necks. There's also an approximate and estimated 0.2% um, anaphylactic shock risk, which may be fatal. Uh, I am aware, loosely aware that there may have been a, a death in the UK. Uh, but there's certainly been a couple of deaths in Europe with the use of Improvac. Um, something else to consider with that, um, most people extrapolate and give a two mil dose. It's not absolutely necessary to use that. You can reduce the dose volume and still get efficacy. Um, we tend to pre-medicate the horses with bute. Um, most of the horses that you want to shut down, and, and this as a GnRH vaccine, it's essentially putting a total block on GnRH stimulation of the pituitary, therefore a block on stimulation of the ovaries with LH and FSH. So they will shut down and resemble ovaries that are in anestrus. Um, one other thing that, so we, we tend to premedicate them with bute, and there is some data from South Africa to suggest that actually a deep intramuscular injection into the gluteal muscles is actually the best um, site to inject this. So not the neck, probably deep in the gluteals is the best site. Um, GnRH vaccination is, is, is banned in any horses under BHA regulations, um, and there is actually no longer a requirement to record the vaccine in the FEI horse's passport. So it is sort of permitted in, 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 in one side, but, but banned in another. The, the thoroughbred um, uh, jurisdictions don't like the idea of in, immune, um, immunological castration or gonadectomy um, for, for controlling behavior. I think publicly that is not very acceptable, uh, which has to be considered for other disciplines as well. We are supposed to write all vaccines down in the horse's passports. Um, and I think it's important, especially if any horse has had a, a GNRH vaccine, one has to question its, its ability to breed in the future. Um, and I know that can sometimes crop up at, at vettings as well. So uh, I would recommend that it is recorded in the horse's passport for, for future reference. And then ovarectomy, of course, will solve all the horse's problems if we remove its ovaries. Um, that's not always the case. Um, sometimes it may be necessary. However, ovaries are not essential for estrus behavior in the mare. They perhaps, um, follicles and estrogen might increase 
the oestrus behavior to result in a standing, a mare in standing oestrus that would allow herself to be covered with a stallion. But generally her default position is one of receptiveness. So some mares, when you remove the ovaries, of course, those that we use in the industry, the teasers, they have their ovaries removed and they're constantly in season. So if, if reproductive behavior is the, pro, is the issue, genuinely, then that, that might make it worse by removing her ovaries. If the behavior is aggressive, then, then the literature would suggest um, that ovarectomy is more likely to be successful therapy, but the evidence is quite weak. And if it's ovarian pain with colic in the extreme, it could be uh, considered curative, um, but equally, you know, use of a GnRH vaccine should shut the mare's ovaries down so she won't be able to ovulate. And then finally, because I know we're, we're, we're probably going a little bit over where we needed to be, um, performance problems have been associated with pneumo vagina. So if you're aspirating air, it's not the most healthy thing for the reproductive tract. The mare might have endometritis, but also that can cause referred vaginal pain um, and behavioral issues. So a really critical appraisal of the mare's uh, vulval conformation is important because simply performing a caslic might help the mare's um, state and behavior when she's in season. If you want to get into the minefield of supplements, then yeah, good luck. Um, I would suggest to you that if any horse is going to go on a, a, a supplement for uh, behavioral issues or suppression of unwanted behavior or calming, then I always direct clients towards Nupafeed. Most of the karmas have got high levels of magnesium, and, and I would I would suggest if, a, if if any of them are going to work, then one with high levels of magnesium would. And I'm sure there are others available. That's just the one I go to because it's quite simple, and the clients can just buy it direct. We've got here, but look how emotive the words are. You know, no more moods. My horse is an angel. It's gone east stress. We've got one here, the Stroppy Mare Supplement, Frisky Mare Plus, Stay Calm. This one from the USA was, was unbelievable. It, it's a pissy mare supplement. Um, we do have to be careful because, you know, when you start talking about karmas, uh, we do have to realize that, they, you know, some of them can have herbal components and, and some of them even things that are swabbable, such as valerian root extract. Um, but we can't underestimate the placebo effect again. You know, if, if, if a client feels that they're going to get a benefit from something, uh, sometimes they do. Um, if you want to go into this into greater depth, I did publish a review in 2021 in EVE, uh, which you can download from the Beaver website for Beaver members, um, looking into all of these aspects and giving a really thorough review of, of the common um, techniques available uh, and, and also exploring some of those more uncommon techniques and, and some of the potential um, regulatory and ethical questions that surround some of them. So if you want that in greater detail, then feel free to, to, to visit the Beaver website and download that article. It should be available on the early view. I haven't seen whether it's published yet. So uh, a whistle-stop tour, and hopefully we've got loads of interesting questions. Thank you, James. That, that was brilliant. You covered a lot there in a very short space of time. Um, I will put that Eve article on the page on the LMS so that whenever, if you're watching the recording, you can also have a look at that paper as well. Fabulous. Thank you. No worries. Um, we do have one question. Uh, scrolling to find it. So Kate has asked, re-IUD pods, is there any issue replacing IUDs in sequence? 
i.e. when no longer suppressing estrus, is it okay to remove the pods then at the next ovulation to put in more? Can they be reused? Yes, yes and no. So my, my question would be, if you're going to put them back in, we don't necessarily need to remove them. So if they, if a mare comes into season, let's, let's for argument's sake, say we're monitoring a mare, we know what she's doing gynecologically, so we're able to scan her. Um, we put it in, we get a persistent luteal phase. When I say bring them out at the end of the season, I'm talking about necess the, the annual season, the, the, right. end of the, the breeding season as such. So they, in reality, they could, they could stay there and potentially have their effect on the next cycle. Now, when I said a lot of clients say that the mare never came back into season, if she has another follicular wave when she's out of season and it ovulates, it also has the potential to then become another persistent CL. And that potentially might be more likely if it's occurred during diestrus than it was genuinely when it was during estrus. So you put them in in the beginning of the breeding season, you might then only take them out in October, November, December time. One of the biggest mistakes I think or misconceptions people have about them is our orders go through the roof in spring. You know, everybody's ringing up for marbles, IUDs, everything to stop mare cycling. But unless the mare ovulates, it's not going to have a, an ovulation to act upon. Yeah. So in that really frustrating time of year between January and April, when the mare can have multiple follicular waves and follicular cycles and just is messing about, this year it seemed to go until well into May, um, <laughs> if they don't ovulate, they're not going to work. Right. So that was the yes. The other yes is, yes, you could take it out and put it back in again. Um, the no only comes because they're, and this is where you've got to use your judgment, um, they're always marketed, these things, as single use only. Um, so I would say to you that if you remove it, you inspect it, there is no damage to it, um, it could it could be cleaned, processed, and re-sterilized, and theoretically could be reused. Okay, great. Um, I hope that answers your question, Kate. Has anybody else got any more questions out there? Um, feel free to unmute and ask away, um, or type away in the chat box. Um, you can do it to everyone, or to me, or to James, and we'll pick it up. Um, I've got a quick one, if that's okay, uh, or maybe not a quick one. Um, <laughs> Uh, you were talking about um, mares actually often being worse behaved in diestrus, or that would be the more natural um, behavioural pattern. Um, I've actually got a mare at the minute who during estrus is soppy as anything and really nice to handle, but during diestrus is actually becoming quite dangerous. Have you got any tips for managing them? Yeah, I mean, it's a really good question. And it's, it, it, you've obviously figured out the mare and, and see where she's at. And, and that is, is reasonably common. Um, the dangerous bit, you know, sometimes people don't quite get, but I, I've had colleagues that have had mares in diestrus that have been really quite resistant. Um, so my options would be either every time she ovulates, she's out of season for five days, and then you give her a prostaglandin and jab her straight back in again. That would be one option. Uh, the other option would be to shut her ovaries down altogether. So the problem is diestrus. The problem is when she's got higher levels of progesterone being produced by a CL. So if you can stop her cycling and having no CLs, then, then that would be the ideal. So you could do that either with a GNRH vaccine, well, either a GNRH overdose 
or a GnRH vaccine or by surgery. Okay. Um, and sorry, I, you said that for the Improvac, you use less than two mils. What dose do you normally, or you can use less than two mils? What would you normally use? Yeah, one mil. One we, mil. Most of the horses that we're dealing with are, are, are destined to be competition horses. That's maybe just the nature of horses that I see. Uh, very rarely do I get the happy hacks that are not bothered about the injection site reactions. For me, uh, an injection site reaction that lasts a month would be a bit of a disaster. So yeah. we do everything to prevent injection site reactions. So nice long needle in the buttocks, um, one mil dose, and um, and pre-medicate them with bute, give them bute for a couple of days afterwards, try and get them moving um, and get them to sign an informed consent form. Brilliant. Thanks very much. You're welcome. Anybody else? The equity was really good. I mean, we didn't get any injection site reactions, but it cost, you know, you would have to really get the client to buy five doses. They were spending more than a thousand quid oh on vaccine and, and you'd have to then pay for it to be shipped from Australasia, which, which we did. Um, and, it, and it worked really, really well without injection site reactions, but the market must just be so small that it's gone off the market in Australasia now. I think the issue is that people are using it regularly maybe they don't go to the effort of importing the the horse licensed one and use the pig one so it get and if if there's a pig mm -hmm. one available in australia then you know what people are like they're going to choose the cheaper option if if they can um but since we've lost that we do have to deal with these significant risks and, and that and that anaphylactic shock risk is real so dominic Berger has experience of um 2000 horses um when you're talking in human terms about relative risk, 0.2% is not rare, it's uncommon. Mm. Um, and so heaven forbid it would happen to anybody, but there've been a couple of deaths in Europe and I'm, I'm led to believe there could be a, a possible uh, death in the UK as well with using Improvac. And it's a real risk to yourself, a needle stick injury with, the product leaflet says, if you stick yourself with a, with a needle with this, you were to never use the product again because you'll come if you really? prick yourself again you'll you will yeah you'll immunogenectomize yourself um, right. the owner of the horse in question is a paramedic so i think that might be sufficient to put her off <laughs> so. so so that might be a, a real life case where surgery is the indication uh, thank you. you see progesterone is all is I, you should always not be cautious of saying things with 100% or always, but progesterone is the dominant hormone. So even when you've got a big diestrous follicle secreting lots of estrogen, progesterone still keeps the mare in diestrous in an unreceptive state. So even if there's little bits of it around, it's going to be reasonably dominant over estrogen. So the, the only way to stop them having the progesterone source is to, is to remove the, take the ovaries out of the equation. And that's the biggest argument for not doing ovarectomy, generally speaking, because the ovary, per se, is, is the only endogenous source of progesterone in the horse. So if you remove it, you're always going to have to give the horse progesterone if she's got a problem after that. Now, ironically, because there is no estrogen from the ovaries, you can actually get away with giving very small doses of Regumate. So you might, if we're talking about equine Regumate, uh, you're probably only going to need to give them a few mils um, per 500 kilos instead of 10. So you might you might get away with a lot smaller dosage after they've had their ovaries removed. 
Um, Kate's uh, going back to the Improvac. Um, Kate's just asked, do you use a new bottle of Improvac per mare? Kate, it's a very good question. Yes, we do. I mean, the, there's a, I think there's a, is, there, is it a 100 ml bottle? Um, we, ooh, <laughs> publicly answering this question is intelligent. <laughs> um, you know, once broached, you're supposed to throw it away. Um, now, we sometimes you look into well, what what were they thinking when they give give these instructions? They're thinking about the environment that those products are used in, um, and so you know you have to question well, what if I broached it once, loaded up two syringes, and kept the product refrigerated? Uh, that would be a judgment call from the veterinary surgeon involved. So we very rarely are doing more than one mare at once. So yes, I throw the bottle away for the next. And, and for subsequent booster doses, there's too much time as a last elapsed, we would, we would throw it away and get another one then. So it does, it does increase your cost from what, what would be 70 pence to about 70 quid for, for one or two doses, depending on how you decide to use it. What was, the, what was, what was so expensive in the equity um vaccination the australian one why well the product the product was just an expensive product but also okay. because it was a vaccine it had to be temperature controlled shipment so uh, yeah malaysia yeah. it then had to be and it always seemed to be very heath robinson when it arrived you know with australian newspaper and chiller blocks in it but it didn't seem very technical uh, however the product was an expensive product there was when it first got marketed i remember i was actually in i can't remember whether it was in australia or new zealand at the time but the Pfizer rep came round and said, you know, there was they were pushing it and thinking it might have a use for head shaking, but I think they've tried to push it into into everything. But the the the, the ban on its use in thoroughbreds, mm. um, I think when they brought it out, they would probably think that you know if they could get it into all of these thoroughbred fillies, but it's actually regulated in thoroughbreds now. Um, the, there's a suspicion that it might be getting abused, um, but there is a dope testing test for it. Uh, and the rule, anybody that actually read the rule on the slide, there isn't a rule that says you can't use uh, an immunological vaccine, um, but the rule actually states you can only use an immunological vaccine for infectious disease. So they don't need to have a new rule for Improvac because they feel it's covered by the other rule. Okay. Um, anybody, any more questions out there at all? The double dose regumate thing is interesting um, because, you know, it, it acts as a bit of a cure-all, you know, um, it is one of those scenarios where if a single dose isn't working, a double is better. That's not yes, always give true. Them, give right? us more. Give it, give it more. Uh, <laughs> but actually, it, there is an effect there. There is a real effect on the brain at higher dosages. And it's interesting because you'd link that back to progesterone in the foals brain and the dummy foals. You know, yeah, it, it has a sedative effect on the brain, so at higher levels, um, and maybe that, that that is getting a little bit abused. But of course, under FEI rules, there's some famous people that have got um, fined for finding testing positive for altranogestin stallions. It is banned in male horses under FEI rules. It's only in female horses where it's allowed. Okay, it, it's in. Uh, I was just thinking. Um... Of the discussion we're going to have at Congress um, with the uh, high-risk mares and the altranogest, and that that's interesting that you bring in the the foals and the dummy foals there as well. Mm. Um, yeah, there's there there always seems to be so much more 
than we know about. You know, we've been using Regumate for years. <laughs> and, and, you know, I've, I've been on stud farms where it's it's just sort of sloshing around almost in the drinking water, it seems. Yeah, it's, it's not, a, not in the UK, I have to say. Yeah. Well, in the, it can happen in the UK, and it's embarrassing when, you know, somebody that spends a lot of time trying to avoid problems turns up to somewhere and... The, you know, the Regimate bottle's got a top and, and a, a lure adaption on it. And the, the guy was, I mean, it was fortunate he was male. It'll still have an effect on him, but it, well, if you met him, you would probably think it already had an effect. <laughs> he was taking the, unscrewing the top, separating his syringe body from the plunger, putting his finger over the end, pouring it out of the bottle in, probably, and pouring too much in it, spilling it at the same time, then reattaching his plunger and sort of joining it like that. He was covered in it. I said, please just wash your hands immediately. And I showed him how to do it. And he was like, oh, I didn't realize it did that. I'm like, oh my God. But it, it, I think it is a, re, a, a real problem. I'm not aware of any cases where, uh, you know, the VMD or HSE have been involved, but, you know, with real life cases where people have stopped, you know, menstruating as a result of being contaminated with Alternagest, it is, it, it, it is potentially, and it's more important with sort of prepubertal women, you know, we've got a mm -hmm. lot of livery yards and people that own horses in that age category. And, and I think that's, possibly why there is a justification to use other products sometimes is because you know we can leave this product in the hands of somebody but it's not necessarily going to be used appropriately yeah. or safely and the other thing is i mean we vets as we've got busier and more demands placed on us we don't necessarily always we should but we don't always read the small print on things you know mm -hmm. we hand out liters of regumate and the last time i looked it said once broached discard in 28 days well if you're dispensing it to a single mare owner for one mare yeah. she's not going to use it in 28 days and there is no pack size to fit 28 days for a horse so we're constantly working under those challenges of, of what to prescribe and how to prescribe it. But, yeah. you know, the products, if it gets contaminated, there's a potential for deterioration. If it's left open, oxidization can change the compound, you know, can lead to um, changes in, the, in, in it as well. And you could get potential deterioration of product as well. So you might find that it gets less efficacious the longer it's been open. Which reminds me, somebody asked me for a bottle of Regumate. I haven't done anything about it, so Regumate. <laughs> right, you know, quick. Yeah. <laughs> right, if there's no um, no other questions out there, I'd like to say a huge thank you to James for giving us such an interesting and informative talk and um, definitely opening my eyes to um, all the bits that I forget about. This episode of BeaverPod was produced by Beaver. For more details on the benefits of your Beaver membership and the products and services offered, please go to our website at www.beaver.org.uk.